0: Hello, I'm Richard Lee. This podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. You can find out how they can help you build your own website at squarespace.com. The Guardian. This week on The Guardian Books Podcast, writing the unwritable.
1: I'm not afraid if someone will kill me for these books. They are crazy if they do it because I have showed my love for a grand, grand book. But if those crazy people want to kill me, let them kill me. But it is an honor to be killed for literature. And I tell you the truth, no, I'm not afraid.
0: Why should the novelist Kader Abdullah be afraid? Not only has he written a radical reworking of the Quran in Dutch, reordering the verses, cutting repetitions and even adding a new chapter about Muhammad's death, but he's also published it alongside a novel imagining the Prophet's life. As both volumes arrive in English, Abdullah explains why he felt compelled to tackle these two pillars of the Islamic faith and why non-Muslims should read them together. Talking of reading together, Emmy the Great and Marta Bausels joined Sean Kane in reading Hanya Yanagihara's A Little Life, which has just appeared in paperback. This novel, which wound up on shortlists for both the National Book Award in the U.S. and the Booker Prize in the U.K., takes on child abuse, self-harm, rape and suicide in an exploration of the limits of human endurance, even for the readers themselves.
2: Let's just say with the second sort of kidnapping, I just thought, I could have done without this. Maybe we don't need, like, yet another episode of misery. He's gone through enough.
0: It Despite its challenging subject matter, Yanagihara's 700-page blockbuster zoomed up bestseller lists on both sides of the Atlantic. And so, even though... Some of the descriptions
3: she used made me feel physically ill.
0: Let's gather up our strength and dive into the difficult world of literary taboos. After publishing two novels exploring life under the Khomeini regime, Kader Abdullah fled Iran in 1985, fetching up in the Netherlands in 1988. Just five years later, he published an award-winning collection of short stories written in Dutch, following it with a series of short stories and novels, including the best-selling The House of the Mosque, which have earned him comparisons with Conrad and Nabokov. His next project added controversy to commercial and critical success, after Abdullah boldly reimagined the Quran in Dutch, publishing it alongside a fictional account of Muhammad's life which imagines the Prophet as an ordinary human being, a man with everyday vulnerabilities, needs and desires, and an eye for the ladies. When he came into the studio, Shan started by asking him why the two books.
1: Yes, you you read the Quran, but you can
0: understand
1: it. It is a so difficult book, so beautiful, difficult. But if you read the book and if you... As a writer, as a novelist, read the book, suddenly you find a a man, a storyteller, a a dreamer, a man with a big imagination. And uh, he's Muhammad. And I said, hey, I like this man. And I can show it. And when I was translating the Quran, I started writing a book about him. And I think, We are not able to understand the Quran if we don't understand Muhammad. And because of that, I have written two books.
3: That translation of the Quran was a translation from Persian to Dutch. Is that correct?
1: No, I have translated from Arabic's one, the original one. But after that, I have read hundreds times the Persian translation. And I have read hundreds times the Dutch translations. And I have read maybe seven times the English translation, because I'm not a translator, but I'm a writer. I wanted to take my readers for a walk during the garden of the Quran. Everybody is talking about the Quran, but nobody is able to read it, and nobody knows what's going about. And this is the only way I have changed the chapters of the Quran. I have translated the book, Muhammad got first, this chapter and after that the second chapter and by this way you can follow muhammad and you can understand his his quran and you can as reader understand muhammad as a writer as a teller and as a man with a big dream
3: could you explain for our readers who may not have read the quran before can you explain how it is traditionally organized into the surah
1: Muhammad said, I got the chapters of the Quran from Allah. Today this chapter, tomorrow the second chapter, after one month seven chapters. But when Muhammad died, the other people tried to put those chapters together. They put it together, but they say, oh, this is very easy. Let us to make it complicated. Let us to make it mysterious. Let us to make something beautiful of it. And because of, the, of that, they put all of the chapters together. And it is a wonderful job, you know. It is as a novel. The, all of the chapters are together. And you as a reader are not able to understand what is going about. And now it is my turn. I will put the chapters in their right way.
3: That's such an interesting part of your Quran is that the surah have been organised in order of length, but you've rearranged it to be chronological. And that corresponds very well with your book, The Messenger, which also details the same path in Muhammad's life. You can see the corresponding uh, changes and uh, events in his life that sort of form the man that he is. When did you first decide, I'm going to organise this?
1: you 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 can't translate you can't translate the quran you know if someone as a translator if translate if translate the quran he can't show the beauty and the power of the quran but you have to live you have to live in quran you have to live with the quran and i used to live with the quran as a child my mother my grandmother my grandfather my uncle my and everybody is talk was talking about that, you know. And because of that, I knew it. Huh? And if I knew it, I knew how I can retell it to my readers, you know. And when I was translating it, I found a way to say the story of the life of Muhammad at the same time. You need to read the messenger to be able to follow the Quran. That is the only way that I taught. And I needed to read for myself. I had never read the Quran before. But after 11th September, my Dutch readers put the Quran in my hands. And they say, read it. But they said, this is your book, read it. It is important for Europe, read it. It is important for the Netherlands, read it. It is important for everybody because everybody is now talking about the Quran. Everybody has a meaning about the Quran, but nobody has read it. And because of that, I read it for the first time. And when I read it, I say, wow, it is a high quality, high quality fiction. And I translate it and I publish it as a masterpiece, as a fiction masterpiece. I have enjoyed of it Mm. as, as a writer.
3: So that motivation to read it for the first time came after September 11, 2001. When did, when did you have that point when you realised that you wanted to do a version in, in Dutch?
1: After uh, 11 September, when I went everywhere, everywhere to, to, to Europe to have a reading for my book, and they made me, I was a writer, but they, they, they made me a Muslim. I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't, I, I didn't know I was a Muslim.
3: You did not view yourself as a Muslim first and foremost? No,
1: I was a, I was a leftist. My idols were Cheguara, Castro. But suddenly they said, Muhammad is your idol. But I didn't know. And, and I started to read it. And I said, yeah, they are true. Uh, this, is, this is a big part of my identity, you know. And I knew now I, I can show, show it to you. Read it. Read Muhammad, the messenger. And read the Quran. Because it is the time. Because of the millions of immigrants. They are coming. But in their head, in their body, they have the Quran and Muhammad.
3: You begin your Quran, the Quran, with yes. uh, the disclaimer that it is impossible to translate the Quran. What difficulties and uh, what phrases and words and parts of it did you find hard to depict in the Dutch language? I
1: told you, it is a high quality of fiction. It is a masterpiece of fiction. And you can understand it, what Muhammad wants to say. And you can understand it, what Allah wanted to say. It is an ocean. You can swim in it, but you, you cannot catch it. You cannot explain it. This is the same. You can only swim in it in your own way. And I have done it in my own way. It is difficult because you can't explain the beauty. But you can only, you can explain the love, but you can, you can do it. You can enjoy of it. And Muhammad was, and I had to say it, I am talking not about the religious side of the Quran. I'm talking about a book, an ancient book. It is a dangerous book if you use it as rules, but it's this beautiful book if you only read as old fiction book.
3: Yes, you've used the word fiction quite a lot to describe the book itself? Do you think that that's sort of a a good way for say a western reader who has not read the book and perhaps has some preconceptions about about Islam or the Quran to approach it purely as a piece of storytelling? Uh,
1: About uh, the whole western uh, world they they say everything but they they don't know it. They haven't read even one sentence of it because it is, they they say only it is dangerous, it is a dangerous book I know it is a dangerous book but it is a book of your time and you have to read it. This is only only what I can say. It. This is the necessity of the time. You have to read it because Europe is changing. Europe has changed, and this book is one of the most important elements of this change.
3: This book came out in 2008, which was a particularly yeah. political time in the Netherlands, with Geert Wilders and,
1: Wilders. Yeah. and
3: uh, the rise of the Freedom Party. What was the reception at the time like?
1: He wanted to put the Quran in the garbage. And I say, okay, you can do it, but first read it and then do the garbage. And because of that, I translate it. I make the Muhammad, and I gave it to him.
3: You gave it to him personally?
1: Yes. And when he read it, he didn't put it in the garbage. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) He couldn't because he said many bad things, but he's not dumb. He's a clever politician.
3: And why the Netherlands, what was the reception like? Because it was a bestseller. When it was
1: It was, it was a bestseller. Everybody was talking. I, I had hundreds of reading about the book in the church, in the university, in the schools, in the, in the parliament, in, by the minister, by the king, by the queen. And it was, and it is a wonderful time.
3: It's just come out in English and is being published in the UK. It, it's come at a particularly important time in Europe as well. It's coming seven years later and into English at a very uh, important time for Muslims and uh, how the wider communities perceive Muslims. How do you hope if a Western reader was to pick up your English translation now, what do you hope they take away from it?
1: At this time, only the ISIS or, or Daesh or the radicalists or the terrorist people talk about the Quran. They are the only one; they are talking about the Quran, you know, and they talk about the dangerous side of the Quran. And because of that, I came with my translation to give some balance in it.
3: Now, let's just uh, quickly discuss some of the changes that you made because you did uh, make some changes to the Quran. You you removed some of the repetition because you said that a lot of that was for the time when many of, much of its audience were illiterate.
1: Uh, You you have over the change, I want to say to you something, uh, 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 some nice, dangerous thing. Uh, The Quran has 113 chapters when i was translating the quran i was in love with, with the proofs of, of uh, with, with the stories a fiction of muhammad or oh, oh, of god i think this is a book of muhammad muhammad was telling it muhammad has has done it muhammad to make it you know i was in love in his fiction you know and i said oh kader abdullah you were three years, you were busy with that book, and then now you translated and translated, and this is good for Allah, this is good for Muhammad. You have to do something for yourself. And I added one chapter more. to the To the Quran. And my Quran has now 114 chapters. The last chapter is mine. And now this translation is from the three, three, three people has written this book, Allah, Muhammad and Qadr Abdullah, and I'd like it very much.
3: <laughs> I, I enjoyed the, that final chapter. It, it, some m- might say it, perhaps it's, it's a controversial detail to add the details of Muhammad's passing in the final chapter. Why did you decide that that, that scene should be added?
1: Everybody, everybody, uh, with uh, everybody say, uh, Muhammad too, that this is a book of Allah. I have respect for Allah and I, I have respect for everybody who believes in Allah. But, but I'm talking about this book. And nobody talks about the masterpiece of Muhammad. But I have cut, I have cut the relationship with book and Allah. And I put it on the ground. Now this is a, this is a real book. Not a holy book. A real book by Muhammad. And this is an honor for me to show it. That it is a book by a man, a dreamer, a man who was a poet, a man who was a writer. He was a businessman. He was a leader. He loved young ladies, and 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 he loved many beautiful of the. And he has done many wrong things, many nice things. This is a book, not a holy holy book of the of the sky. And I did it to make it easier for you to to read it and criticizes the book, to say good things and bad things about the book. And I did it, but you cannot say bad things about the Quran, but you can write bad things about the translation of Qadir Abdullah.
3: <laughs> I mean, uh, that's probably a very good point to bring us to the other book, The Messenger, yeah. which is a depiction of Muhammad as a man, as told from the perspective of his right-hand man and adopted son, Zayn. Why did you decide to do it from Zayn's perspective,
1: I'm a novelist. I was looking for a point of view, a teller to tell Muhammad's story. Muhammad's story you can read, you can see, you can taste in the Quran, but a novelist needs to to tell it, to retell it. And I needed somebody to to write it. And I chose for the son of, of of Muhammad. It is the only the best way because that man was able to go to the house of Muhammad, to go to, to the to bedroom of Muhammad, to go to the bedroom of the v- wives of Muhammad. And he knew everything. And because of that, I, I choose for that storyteller.
3: I learned quite a lot from this book yeah. about uh, Muhammad as a man, and yeah. I enjoyed the small, very human details about him being a bit of a ladies' man, yeah. <laughs> and the fact he's very self-conscious about his handwriting, and that he has periods of very crippling self-doubts when he's waiting for Allah's yeah. messages. When you were doing your research and sort of compiling this portrait of a man, did you learn anything new while you were doing yes.
1: This? You, um, Everybody talks about Muhammad, he used young ladies, he, he, he slept with young ladies. But when I read the Quran, I, saw, I discovered something else. Okay, he loved young ladies, but he didn't want them only f- for their bodies. He needed them for their sharp and young memories, you know. Muhammad wasn't able to write. He was a teller. He told his stories, but he needed young ladies to keep it, young ladies to write it down. Muhammad used the young ladies as computers, you know, and many of such things I have discovered. I have put it in the messenger. And because of that, you get a better point of view to read and to understand Muhammad.
3: There are parts in the messenger which correspond with parts in your Quran where... Muhammad reveals himself at the height of his power to have a streak of violence in him, particularly when he goes to Medina, Medina and yeah. exiles the Jews. And uh, he burns trees and fields and basically tells them all to leave. There's a moment where it's, it's Rabbi Amr ibn uh, Jihash he tells yep. Zayn that there was no prophet ever used as much violence as your Which, Muhammad.
4: Yeah.
3: Is that part in this book to sort of confront the stereotype and the image that a lot of people have of Muhammad now as being indicative of a streak of violence in Islam?
1: I told you, Muhammad was a dreamer. Muhammad, Muhammad dreamed to have a big book, and he wanted to have a God and Allah. But first he tried to make his book and his Allah by poetry. The first, The first chapters of his book are pure poetry, you know? And after many years he understood You are not able with poetry and with fiction make a big book and a big Allah, you know? And because of that, he started, he used violence, you know. He went, he went violence. He went to Medina and he became a, a leader. And he has done many things that a real leader does. The same as George Bush, the same as Obama, the same as Churchill, the same either and they are good people. But they have made big, big wars and they have used violence. Why Churchill used so many violence? Because because of the time and because he was a leader. And I show you and I show you why he had to use violence. It was the only way to change his society, and he has done many, and uh, he has used many violence against the, the Jewish people.
3: I mean, we've talked about the reception in the Netherlands after it was first, they were both first published in Dutch, but yeah. how many countries around the world, and how many languages?
1: There are many countries that have translated, only the messenger, they, they didn't dare to translate the, the Koran, they're afraid to, conversational problems and to to give violence by the radical muslims but uh, for the first time in in london <laughs> we have both our books together
3: what were the conversations like with the publishers when they told you and your agents that they didn't want to publish uh, the quran only the messenger
1: yeah i i, I talked with them but they say first uh, let we publish uh, messenger as a fiction is easier for us and in the netherlands it was easier to publish the Quran because I myself was present and I could present the book and I met with many television shows and radios and interviews, I, I could explain it. I could have uh, the problem under my own control, you know? But it was difficult in, in, in Germany or, or, or in Stockholm or Oslo without Qader Abdullah to publish the Quran. My present was, was necessary to publish the book. And because of that, I'm now every week in in London to explain it, that it is not a dangerous book. And I have translated because of love for literature. One thing I have to say, my father has read the book about 700 times in his entire life, you know, and my mother, my grandfather, everybody, you know, but I have read it in my own way.
3: And how about in Islamic parts of the world? Depictions of Muhammad can sometimes be controversial. Have you had any negative feedback or any backlash at all from any Islamic countries?
1: Of course, of course. When a, when a book was published in the Netherlands, the the, uh, the fanatic ayatollahs, they started with fatwa against Qader Abdullah. But uh, the Iranian embassy in Amsterdam, they told to them don't do it it is not a bad book it is not a dangerous book it is the only it is a book for europe but not for iran of saudi arabia and they they were right because we cannot have the quran of the ayatollahs and the quran of saudi arabia in london in amsterdam in oslo there are coming, there on way millions of immigrants on way in, in, to, to Europe, to London, and to every country in Europe, and we need a new reading of the Koran. And because of that, I came with those two books. Uh, many, many schools uh, invited me to, to have a reading for the, for the students, and many, many students, they said to me, oh... Now I'm, I feel free in my heart because before you're translating, I felt under pressure because of the Quran. But now everybody is, is talking about your book and I can talk about the book at the same time. And it is a, a feeling of a revelation or liberation and revelation.
3: It's the wonderful recommendation at the front. These two books are being published at a time in, in our society when alongside the secular, there is now a new spiritual awakening underway. God Abdullah has given us a beautiful gift. Which was uh, said by the former Dutch prime minister uh, Lubes yeah, that kind of endorsement must be <laughs> wonderful, particularly bridging the secular and the spiritual it's he's it, sort of saying that it it has a place for both are you fearful of controversy do you enjoy I it? have
1: i have my answer is ready you know my mother my mother had never read one of my books or some, but she when she heard about the translation of the, of the Koran and when she had heard about paris uh, and and Charlie Abdu are the same. My fa- my mother said, be careful, be careful, son, be careful. But my answer is clear. It is an honor to be killed for literature. I'm not afraid if someone will kill me for these books. But I have they are crazy if they do it. Because I have I have showed my, my love for a grand grand book. But if those crazy people want to kill me, yeah, let them kill me. But it is, it is an honor to be killed for, for literature. And I tell you the truth, no, I'm not afraid of that because this is my life. I had to do this. I escaped from Iran because of the Quran and the ayatollahs. But the life put the book in my hands and say, translate it, and I have translated. And what can, the consequence of this job to be, we will see. But I couldn't stop myself. I couldn't stop myself. I couldn't stop translating of this book. I had to do this. And I have done it with respect and with love.
0: The Messenger and Abdullah's version of the Quran are both translated into English by Nuri and Nusha Nighting. And published by World Editions
4: Squarespace.
3: This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options, but if you want to build it beautiful, there’s only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, so you can do more than create a website, you can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands, and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com forward slash guardian.
0: Squarespace. Anya Yanagihara's novel A Little Life opens with four ambitious graduates making their way in New York City. There's aspiring actor Willem, Brooklyn-born artist JB, frustrated architect Malcolm, and at their centre, the withdrawn, enigmatic lawyer Jude. As the decades pass, the dynamic between them becomes deeper and darker, details of Jude's horrific childhood emerging gradually with Yanagihara's exploration of whether a childhood can define a life. Sean Kane was joined in the studio by Emily Moss, also known as singer Emmy the Great, and our community's editor, Marta Bausells to discuss their experience of reading A Little Life, a project which turned out to be no little undertaking
3: a Little Life is such a strange phenomenon in that it is so intense and so painful, yet it's so popular. I don't know of any other book that is this hard to read that has been read by so many people. We're not going to go into too many specifics to allow people who haven't read A Little Life yet to have some surprise, but when all the reviews came out last year, every single one made it very clear, this is a very harrowing book. I haven't met a single person yet who didn't know some detail about the challenging nature of some of the content when they opened it. So why are we all reading it? Are we just a bunch of voyeurs? Did, did you know how hard this book was going to be when you picked it up, Emma?
4: Yeah, I was really into book podcasts during the period that Yanigahara was doing the rounds and I must have heard her on at least three podcasts, including The Guardian Book Podcast saying that she doesn't believe in redemption. (laughs) Uh, So I put off reading this book for about, I think, six months. Mm -hmm. and It wasn't until I knew we were going to do this that I finally pushed through and finished it.
3: How about you, Marta? You, You read it a while back, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I read it shortly after it came out, and it caught me a bit off guard. I'd only read one interview with her on The Observer, and I knew it included child abuse and really horrific... Stuff, but I didn't expect it to go into it with such detail and to be as horrific as it is. I think it still hadn't been talked about as much as it has been now. But quite a few people recommended it to me, and it said it's unlike anything you've uh, read before. It's so worth it, so I just went for it, and I did love it. But I think it's not a voyeur thing. There's an element of hype, and I've been... I've been following the social media reactions to it. It's quite amazing that they even have a Twitter account and an Instagram account for the book. And there's a huge fan phenomenon now where people take pictures of locations in the book and tag them in a certain way. And then there are pictures with the names of the characters and a hashtag called Jude forever. And there's a big fan phenomenon that I think is is making people read it now as well. Like a groupie phenomenon, maybe. (laughs) But, um, But that's, I guess... I I don't think any of this prepares you for what the book is actually like, but I think once you're reading it, it sucks you in in a way and the beginning is so soft compared to what's coming that then you can't stop reading when the really harrowing stuff starts. I
3: mean, the book is about 700 pages long and, as you say, it does start quite softly. I'd say probably it's only around page 200 or so that you start really getting concrete details about what happened to Jude when he was a child. I mean, there are plenty of books that cover similar taboos out there, but a lot of them allow the worst abuses to sort of appear off the page. In terms of child abuse, you could use books like Nabokov's Lolita or Emma Donoghue's Room, where things are said, but they're also left to your imagination, which is really not the case here. Emma, do you think that it is important to see these really confronting acts like child abuse, rape, domestic abuse, self-harm carried out in front of us?
4: I don't know if it's important it was by the time all that stuff happens in the book you're so invested in Jude or by the time that's revealed it's sort of hinted at the beginning you're so invested in Jude and because I also knew that something terrible was coming, I sort of had this grim determination to carry on through. And I did keep wondering if I'd ever read another book that went into as much detail. And I'm not sure I had. I kept thinking this should be misery lit, this should be like, you know, trash, but she's done it so elegantly that I'm still immersed in it as a literary experience.
3: There has been a general consensus that whether or not you like A Little Life, it is a book that will sort of follow you around once you've finished it. I agree with you. I I probably haven't read another book that is so graphic and so unrelentingly graphic throughout the book. I was thinking about, is there any other book that I've ever read that is so unflinching and the only book I can really think of is perhaps Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho which is very very different in terms of tone to this but it's probably the only other book that I've ever considered putting down at points.
4: Did you think of Dickens? Of, of Dickens? Yeah I kept strolling back in my mind to um, Dickens books that I'd read at school and kind of comparing the trajectory of the protagonist from utter abuse and being born outside of society and being thrown around these terrible people who somehow also managed to instruct the protagonist just by being the only contact that they have with other humans and then finding themselves as adults in in these fine surroundings but you know not being able to let go of what happened to them.
3: I mean, there is probably something very Dickensian in it, in that it's such an epic book and it spans decades and it follows people over lifetimes, which I suppose is also a sort of redempting feature to the book, that there's meat to it, it's not gratuitous, you never feel like it's mawkish, that you're sort of being confronted with misery for the sake of being confronted with misery.
0: This confrontation with misery was on Claire Armistead's mind as well when she spoke to the novelist last year. Jude goes through such terrible suffering... If it's hard to read, how did Yanagihara cope with writing it? You know, the writing of it actually was less traumatic in ways... It was less traumatic than people expect, I suppose, because... The character of Jude was someone I knew very well going into this and although it was difficult authorially to put him through these sorts of things, it was also completely consistent with who he was and how he had been taught to believe and what he was taught to think about himself. And so while it was difficult and while I felt for him, it didn't feel gratuitous to me. It felt something um, that would naturally happen to him because I think when people are damaged and people are taught to think a certain way about themselves, they always seek out danger for themselves, whether they know it or not. And often they don't.
3: Marta, how did you feel about the nature of the way Yanagihara covers the issues? Did you ever feel that it it was too graphic?
2: No, I didn't. Because I think, as she has talked about in, in many interviews, and I think this is um what she went for with this book, she wanted to take things to the extreme, to explore this character and to make it huge and excessive and take the reader with her. But as Emmy said, it's done in such an elegant way and by the time this starts happening, you believe in the character so much and you care about them so much that you just go with it. And the way she focuses on Jude's inner life, I I, I can't compare it to anything I've experienced before either. It's done in just such a well-crafted way that I, I really really enjoyed it. But I don't think you particularly need the graphic descriptions to understand abuse. But I think this is this is what she tried with this book and this is what this character went through really. And I do I there was one point, let's just say with the second sort of kidnapping that I just thought I could have done without this. Maybe we don't need like yet another episode of at a misery. He's gone through enough. Like, But after that brief flashback, I just really believed it all and I, I didn't think anything was gratuitous. The way he experiences the flashbacks, like the way she puts them in the book, like he would experience it in his mind, like it kind of haunts him. He's going through his rather nice present life, but he can't stop this from coming back to him and you experience it that way. I think
4: that she trusts her characters with so much because the, the thing that we don't talk about when we're talking about the book is how much love and loyalty and success she gives her characters, which is kind of the flip side yeah. to everything that happens to Jude. It's like, I want to say it's like a cushion, although everything that happens to Jude is so brutal and everything that continues to happen is still so brutal. But if she hadn't given them so much success and she hadn't given them the love that they have between them as friends, I don't think that anyone would have been able to handle the dark stuff.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's. I think it. it is ultimately about friendship and love, but specifically friendship. And I, I absolutely loved the Harold character as well. Mm. But this made it even worse for me because it's like there's absolutely no hope for him. He's just not going to be capable of experiencing happiness. You know, even if he's surrounded by these fantastic people who you also believe completely and care about. And he's surrounded by love, really. But, yeah, I, I did leave the story with actually almost positive feelings. It's so difficult. It, it's so it's contradictory. A, but
3: It's a very strange book in yeah. that a lot of it is so positive and so happy in that he's got these wonderful, handsome, kind friends who are, you know, Oscar winning actors and respected architects. And Jude himself is a very well regarded lawyer. And he's surrounded by this sort of network of people that all just want what's best for him and they want him to get better. But the horrible reality that you're constantly reminded of when you have these chapters with Jude is that he's aware that he probably won't.
4: I think what's so amazing is that usually when you read a book or see a film that has an architect, a famous actor and a high power lawyer in it it really isn't supposed to be so believable. Yeah. Cuz yeah. those are very sexy jobs that <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a famous actor in a book done in a way that makes me believe it. Yeah. And I think she she does it really well because she mentions nothing. She doesn't really say he wins an Oscar and she doesn't, you know, she doesn't place them in time. And I I read that she did that because she wanted it to have a fairy tale feel to it. So she never mentions any sort of contextual landmark. She never says before 9-11, after 9-11 in New York. She never says, this is the award this person has won. She never says this is the corporation that he's fighting. She doesn't give us real names other than streets. And I I think that that adds to that sense of intimacy in the group and this heightened sense of magic, which makes it okay that these four friends just happen to have reached such insane heights while maintaining the relationships that they have.
3: How did you feel about the manner in which Yanagahara handles the various topics that she includes, including child abuse, depression, suicide, self-harm. Were there any particular elements where you thought that this was being handled particularly well or or not, if the case?
4: I thought she everything was so serious. She writes so seriously, so elegantly. At the beginning, I found it laborious because it's just so steady, mm. her writing. But as it went on, I realised that's what she had to do. Because if she didn't have such a steady hand on it, then you would be like caught up in the drama, or in the darkness, or in the giddiness. It's almost just her absolute consistency of tone that takes you through the whole thing.
3: I thought she handled everything quite well. I thought some of the descriptions of the self-harm veered into too graphic. I think there's a general understanding that self-harm is an act of violence, and that it's going to be painful but some of the descriptions she used made me feel physically ill and there are often times where I'd be reading it perhaps on the bus or in public and I'd actually have to put it down because I just I'd have to deal with the swelling of feeling that I would have when I read it did you have any similar experiences I
2: didn't have to put it down, but I do remember I I happened to read it on a weekend I spent at my parents. And I do remember spending hours in their kitchen crying for for some of those (laughs) hours as well. I mean, it was very intense. And I remember feeling dizzy at points and definitely sickened by by some of the self-harm descriptions. Yeah, it's unlike anything I've ever read.
3: Emma, were there any elements that come back to you when you think about the book that were just overwhelming for you
4: I worried that there's something wrong with me I didn't cry <laughs> really I was reading cry. it while traveling <laughs> and I knew I knew because I had listened to so many interviews and I had read about it I knew it was going to be harrowing so it's almost like when I watched the Blair Witch Project and I wasn't scared because everyone was like oh it's so scary it's so scary <laughs> but oh, I was deeply moved it was more the positive stuff that moved me because I think I just knew that Jude because what she said about no redemption, I just knew he wasn't going to get better. And after that point, it didn't really matter what he wasn't going to recover from. I just knew that he mm. wasn't going to recover. But mm. uh, the stuff that really moved me was the moments when they reach out to each other, the friends and Harold and Julia. If I was going to cry, I think it would more have been for that stuff.
2: Mm. I, I have to also say I cry really easily um, <laughs> with with fiction. But it was probably the episodes where he was a child the first few flashbacks because like I said I didn't really know what I was um, getting into so it's so intense it's relentless she doesn't really spare any details and she got into his mind so well that I guess it was the, the innocence of the child but then I think yeah I also was very moved by all the positive moments and all the love from the other characters and Yeah, I I remember, though, some of the most extreme self-harm scenes and then the abuse by the Caleb character was too much, really. I was completely overwhelmed, to be honest. I Um, found
3: the same thing. And that's so interesting because preceding that, you do have descriptions of child abuse where you have the child that has been manipulated into the sexual wishes of horrible adults. And then you have the same man who is now an adult and he's sort of in a position of holding his own a little bit more. But because you've seen his past and then you're confronted with the fact that he still has to deal with this when he's an adult and he's being emotionally abused and he's being raped by someone who he has put a lot of trust in because he is a child abuse victim... When that happened, I uh, that was a really big point for me where I said I don't know if she's dealing with this right. I don't know if we needed this. And I'm still not sure whether we needed that period with Caleb. I don't know if we needed to see him being raped
2: when he was an adult. I think the point of that was to see how much self-loathing he felt. And this is where there's where I realized there's absolutely no hope for him because now he's an adult. He has rationalized what's happened to him. He could walk away right now. He could ask for help. Everyone wants to help him. But he's just not going to because he thinks he deserves it. And that was so crushing. But I think that's where you see that he's just, like, traumatized for life. Mm -hmm. That was very painful. But I think it did make sense for me to have that in his adult life.
4: Every time I tried to flinch at yet another episode of violence, I asked myself, what if this really does happen what if people slip through the cracks children slip through the cracks and they are abused and abused and then they grow up to believe that they deserve abuse and i had to say that yeah it probably does happen and for this this book was a really weird experience of checking my privilege Hmm. i don't know if you had the same thing there was this thing where jude finds it so difficult to do things like walk or interact with people who he hasn't known for a long time or even talk about himself these are things that i take for granted Mm. and because you're so invested in jude you suddenly you read a chapter and then you go out walking and you're like god i'm so lucky
3: Mm. there are a couple of instances there actually that you've just reminded me of that are sort of perfect examples of very small moments on the page that are very big for the reader. Um, One when Jude has just had an episode and he's in a lot of pain and I think he had a wound on his leg as well but he's determined to go on his Sunday walk and there's that small period where he's thinking should I call my doctor should I should I not go but he's so determined to stick to his regime because if he doesn't go for the walk it's admitting that something's wrong and also the moment where he's sort of fooling around with his mentor Harold and Harold goes to tickle him in a very sort of playful way and he pushes him away.
4: That, those two, I would say those two are the moments for me as well when the fact that he never truly trusts Harold after everything they've been through, he still expects him to do something to him. Mm. It's just such a simple act to receive love from someone who loves you. It's just, um, it it makes you think a lot, even after the book is finished, about how well how
0: lucky you are A Little Life is published by Picador in the UK and in the US by Anchor
2: The New Odyssey is the definitive story of life, death and the survival on the refugee trail from the Guardian's migration correspondent Patrick Kingsley It's a story about who these refugees are and about the smugglers, coast guards, volunteers and politicians who help them or look the other way Buy your copy from The Guardian Bookshop today for just £9.99 and save over 30% on the recommended retail price.
0: Thanks to Kader Abdullah, Emily Moss and Marta Baucells. Next week we'll be heading east as we hear from Pussy Riot's Masha and The Guardian's own Luke Harding. You can find us online or install us on your smartphone by searching for Guardian Books Podcast. Until then, from me, Richard Lee, and our producer Susanna Trezillion, thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.